Welcome to Intersect, a podcast where we find connection in each other's story. My name is Jim Moon, your host, and tonight I am with my friend Marty Phillips, who leads an organization that works to equip and train church planters. He's also involved with a house church plant, and he's what we might call, biblically speaking, a tent maker. He doesn't really make his income from his missional work, but he does some other side hustles, and that is a missional work in its own right. So, Marty, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll dive into an interesting texture of how generational prayer has shaped your sense of calling and mission. Thank you so much, Jim. It's a pleasure to join you this evening on your podcast. And yes, my real passion is to see home fellowships or house churches planted primarily among people groups that have been traditionally resistant. So mm. my mm. passion is to see them in, among all people. But when I was in my early 20s, I took this big trip around the world for several months. I was on the border between China and Hong Kong, and I couldn't get through. I was waiting for my turn to get through, and it was started to rain. I was really cold. And in that night, I just felt God powerfully calling me to work for the unreached people groups. And mm. I had always, a small mm. child, felt a calling to ministry, and I never felt, even though I studied to be a minister and did theological training and religious training, I'd never felt a real calling to be a church pastor per se, but I did feel a very not in the large conventional part. sense, at least not in the conventional yeah. sense of a brick and mortar church. But I did feel yeah. a deep mm -hmm. commitment to ministry, and so God mm, just led okay. me on uh, opening doors, closing doors, until the calling was so overwhelming, I had to give up what I was doing. Even still, though it was ministry. Are related to being full-time uh, endeavors to uh, build God's kingdom. Okay. Okay. So you're in Thailand. You're on what the Aussies might call a walkabout uh, touring uh, Most the grand. Most of the people that I met were, were, were Australians. <laughs> okay. All yeah. right. All right. And, and when you're, when you're in the Far East, you have this burning sense that God's laying on your heart um, to raise up uh, movements, I guess, of people uh, making disciples. Um, did you, you probably didn't have a super clear sense of what that was at that time, I suppose. I don't know. Did you? Well, I didn't fully, but I'd had several experiences on that trip. <laughs> Okay. Excuse me, I mentioned I felt this deep calling, but I had had just traveled through China for three and a half weeks. And okay. I didn't send, the church hadn't really started to grow yet in China. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. had several experiences in China. I had one in India in which I went to a, a church on Sabbath. And the union president, actually, of the local Adventist church invites me to, to his home for lunch. And I ask him, okay. Pastor, tell me 
tell me about the work of the church here. And he says, well, you want to know the truth or you want to know the sanitized version? And he was a local <laughs> man and his wife. He says, I want to know the real truth. I said, I studied for the ministry. I'm a son of a pastor. I'm a grandson of people who were in ministry. So just tell me the honest truth. He says, you know what? Mm. I love the missionaries. They came and served our country here well. They laid the foundation for us. Mm. But, you know, in India, we can't do things like we do in America. In America, you mm. ask your Adventist, at least in those days, not to wear jewelry and stuff. But if you mm -hmm. ask the Indian women to take off their wedding jewelry, I'm close to mm -hmm. retirement. And it's been a huge embarrassment all my life with my wife. People think that hmm. I am uh, having an affair with her if I'm walking with her in the market hmm. or going somewhere because hmm. she doesn't have her wedding jewelry on. And we haven't put it hmm. on for the sake of missionaries. I says, Pastor, hmm. why, don't just, uh, why don't you just, and he says, the church isn't growing due to this because it's a hindrance to the gospel. And no Indian family of good standing wants their women to take off their wedding uh sign of that they are committed to their marriage and due to that our church so it was an issue of go ahead yes it was an issue of what the the, the missiologists call contextualization i suppose and and uh the well-meaning brethren who'd come there didn't really maybe understand that i suppose i don't know it's true and he said look and if i were to do it I love the missionaries, but they just don't understand. And if they, if I were to tell my wife to do it on and I would start baptizing and authorize all my ba pastors to start baptizing the women, it would be such a big shock for the missionaries. They would probably fire me. I don't do it over being fired, but I do it to keep the mm. peace for now. But it's my prayer that the church will wake up. So that just mm. that night as I was standing alone, that kept going through my mind that we had to do mission in a new way. We had to evaluate mm. the gospel in lights of local conditions and see what mm. the gospel and what it does. And that night I started feeling God was calling me to think outside the box. I hit mm. on the same trip, stopped at Egypt, and later I worked with the man 15 years later because I think I was maybe 22 on the trip or so. And I talked to the head pastor in one of the Arab countries of our Adventist church. And I said, what, what about the vast Muslim population in your country? You're basically mm -hmm. reaching, he says, I can't do it. It's mm -hmm. outside the bounds of what, if we just want to paint our church, it takes us five years to get permission. We're under so much persecution. It will take some other way. And that kept going through my mind. How are mm -hmm. we going to reach the Indians? How are we going to reach the the Muslim community? How are we going to reach the Chinese in an effective way? Each one with their own issues. You know, when I traveled through China, it was as it is today. There was a time of openness, but it was when I went through mm. there, it was very, very closed iron curtain, largely of mm. movement of people. And I was like privileged being a Westerner, being able to travel around when other people have to get permission to go from one town to another. And so those issues just were kind of burning in my heart of what to do. And I had a third experience, very powerful experience. <laughs> I traveled through Pakistan and uh, shortly after this, 
and I got out in Karachi. I go to the uh, airport to the hotel that I was staying, and the taxi driver was very chatty, and I just wanted to sleep. I was very tired. I had about a 30-minute ride from the airport to, to the hotel that I had reserved. And I just wanted to rest because I was coming from kind of a stressful work situation where I had to wind up a bunch of stuff. And I just wanted to rest. But he was so impassionate. He says, I'm a Muslim. Hmm. It doesn't matter who you are, but I need to tell you some stories, son. And so he told me hmm. that, you know, son, because he was an older man, like in his 70s, maybe doing the hmm. taxi. And I was this young, now 23, 24-year-old mm -hmm. kid. And he says, you know, God is like this mother chicken, you know, or a mother, he says. And this mm. is very odd for a Muslim man to say, he says, you know, a mother is so, so good that if the father's scared, the house is burning down, the mother will break past the fireman. She will run into the burning house to save her children. And God is that way, my son. Then he told me mm. another story of a mother chicken. And he says, you know, your mother chicken, if the barn will burn down, the mother chicken will just take her wings and cover up her babies, and she will all die to save her children. And the like same Matthew way, 23. Like Matthew 23. And I was, uh, okay, by this time I'm listening. And uh, <laughs> finally we get to our destination. I get my stuff and leave. And he calls me back, come back, come back, young man. And I come back to the taxi thinking he's probably wanting, I wasn't in a very happy mood, I can say that, shame on me. And I thought he was wanting <laughs> a tip or something more than what I'd given him, and it wasn't. And what he told me really pierced me to the heart. He says, young man, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Christian, but what matters is that you live fully for God. And mm. then, you know, at that mm. time, I thought Muslims were pagans. Who are they? Mm. And this mm. really shifted my thinking towards them. Mm. And I felt mm. this piercing. Here I was. I was, uh, uh, you know, studied for the ministry. And here I was not even giving mm. my testimony and tired of him. And yet he's giving a very powerful testimony to me. And that kind of kicked you me almost. Go ahead. You were almost like, uh, it's almost like you were uh, Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he meets Cornelius in starting, something was starting to sink in of like, wait a second, you know, because maybe Jews and Romans at that time were the equivalent of Christians and Muslims at this time. And it's kind of like, wait a minute, this taxi driver seems to have a connection here. Um, and, and, God has been teaching him some things. What does that mean for even the way that we minister in the Muslim world? And that was that was the 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 connection. So as as I ended up as God in his big plan of things, I ended up working in the country of Azerbaijan for ADRA, which is a humanitarian mm. relief agency of the Adventist Church. And as I was there, I started to meet a lot of Muslims. I now looked at them through a different lens. We went there very early mm. on with my wife just after. I went first alone, then came back with my wife. And we just had a very, very incredible time there meeting many, many Muslim families. And all my staff, we had mm. a, anywhere between 100 and 200 staff in our operation. 
all of them, but a handful mm. were, were Muslims. We had a few Adventists in our mm. staff. And mm. I just really came to love them. And while I was there, mm. while I worked for ADRA and paid with U.S. government funding, I wasn't supposed to be directly involved with mission work. So in a city mm. not uh, attached to the city where I worked, in a whole different part of the country, I became involved with a church plant. It had been a large church mm. of about 120 mm -hmm. members. There had been ethnic mm -hmm. cleansing in the country. The vast majority of the Christians had to flee. And there was left about 20, 20 some members <laughs> and a new mm. young pastor. And I just really mm. challenged. I was maybe a year or two older than him. I was maybe 24, mm. 25, and he was uh, maybe 22 or 23. And I really challenged the young pastor. You are sitting on a gold mine, I told him. You know what? If you do mm. this right, you can become a model of what can happen in Muslim countries. Mm. And God started to work. And in about two and a half years, his congregation went from 20 people to over 200. And another wow. year and a half more, it was to about 350 members. And what and was it that kind of... So as we prayed together, he and I, and then he was praying with his local elders, several very incredible things happened. And the very first hmm. thing was that the church had always been in Russian. Well, Russia had been sure. kicked out. There had been perestroika. There mm -hmm. was a rise of nationalism. We need to speak in the local language. And they had fortunately brought a, mm. a pastor who was of a near-ethnic Turkish background and hmm. but spoke a different dialect. It'd be like speaking Spanish and Italian or something, or English and okay. Platteuil, uh, German or something that are similar but hmm. still too far apart to understand very well. So the elders mm -hmm. came around him in great faith, put their hands on the young pastor. We're going to pray that you can speak to us in our language. Even though it's similar, wow. and in the 1600s we spoke about the same language, we hardly mm. understand each other. So they prayed over him, and within three weeks, they were under, he was speaking their, their language, their dialect. So it was and almost that, like a tongues, tongues kind of experience from the book of Acts chapter 2. It was, it was a very powerful experience. As this happened, I mm. said, you know, Yvonne, you need to also encourage local music. Because they, they, he was preaching in, mm. in the local language, but they were still singing hymns from the last century, you know, in Russian. Mm. It sounded totally okay. archaic. And mm. then God did a miracle. And one of the ladies... It was like every two, three weeks, every month, she had a new song. She actually had your gift, Jim, uh, with mm. music. She's a mm. very musical person. She mm. could pick up and play, but it was had been secular music all her life. All of a sudden, God would, mm -hmm. she would come almost like under inspiration and write these most mm. incredibly beautiful uh, religious songs about Jesus. Mm. And then she would come, introduce them to the church. She was the music leader, and it just revolutionized the church. And this, this lady wasn't, life. in which she relatively new to Christian faith? I she mean, was it a sounds brand like... new believer, brand new believer. Wow. Wow. And God so brought God her, takes... and she just, 
yeah. just really, really used her. Then a third thing happened. <laughs> uh, the pastor felt that, uh, you know, they found that anything Christian was annoying in Muslim countries. And especially then, there had already been ethnic cleansing. There had been pogroms. And hmm. with a big sign in front of their church, they'd been very happy because under Soviet times in 1983, they had gotten permission to be an official Adventist church, which was a huge privilege. But hmm. they became convicted they needed to take down that sign and say, hmm. House of Prayer for all people. Well, wow. they did, went back and forth and back and forth. They took down the sign. And each time one of these things happened, more and more people were coming. It was 20, wow. 30, 35, 40. Then another thing happened uh, that uh, they started, instead of using the Christian Russian terms for religious things, they used the Muslim terms. So there was, uh, mm -hmm. uh, instead of saying Yeshua, they would say Isa for Jesus. So mm -hmm. one was the Christian, mm -hmm. one was the Islamic term, and so forth mm -hmm. and so forth. So they started using these terminologies, and the church just really, really expanded. And then one of the churches, very interesting, the church was made up. Of uh, the old original members that were there, there was old German members, a few Russians. Most of the Russians mm -hmm. had gone, but there was a few mm -hmm. old German families because a lot of Germans had spread across the ex-Soviet Union. There was old Jewish families who had become Christian, mm -hmm. and there was Azeri families that had become Adventist as well. So this mm -hmm. was kind of the core group. And so Sister Zima, who was from Iran, Mm -hmm. originally, but living in this country and had been one of the old charter members from the 80s in the church, <laughs> she said she needed to talk to the elders. So the mm -hmm. two Azari elders came, the two uh, Jewish elders came, and the mm -hmm. one German female elder came. Mm -hmm. And she says, I need to share something with you, brothers and mm -hmm. sister how I became a follower of Jesus. I came from the most devout Muslim families. In fact, my family mm. was so devout, mostly only the boys ever memorized the Quran. And like Jews mm. memorized the Old Testament or the Pentateuch, uh, mm -hmm. Muslims, many devout families have their children memorize the whole Quran. She said, mm. our, our family was so devout, my father, paid for me not just to memorize it, but to understand every word I said. Mm. So I first learned Arabic, then I learned the Quran, and then he wanted me to become an expert so I would understand the deep meanings and the commentaries. Mm. And so my father taught me, but she said, as I studied the Quran, brothers and sisters, I mm. was transformed because mm. most of Muslims' eyes have been blinded. And mm. in this process, as I was studying, it was just like flashes of lightning. I kept reading about Jesus, mm. and we just relegated Jesus off into nowhere land. Yeah, we give him lip service. He's a great prophet. But Jesus was born of a virgin birth. Jesus mm. is the word of God. 
Jesus is the Spirit of God. Jesus healed a blind man. But when I read it in the Arabic, she said, even though I'm Farsi and this is what my dad wanted me to do is to truly, mm. deeply understand. In the story that it says of the Quran of Jesus healing the blind man, that man was blind, born actually without eyes. And Jesus mm. touches him and he heals his eyes. One thing is to heal, another thing is to create. And this just blew me away that Jesus created eyes for the blind man. So who is he? Who is this person? He's more than a prophet. And then when I started putting it together, here is this man who's who did this. And then there's a story she said that's not in the in the Bible, but it's in the Quran that Jesus comes, he forms this little bird in clay, he blows into the bird, and the bird blows off. And this just shook me. There's no man that can breathe, form bird. This is going back like what God did. He kneels down and forms Adam and Eve and blows into them and they become a living life. And in the same language then is used for Jesus. And she said, I went and took these verses and talked to my to my professors, my religious professors, and they got so angry they slapped me and it became dangerous. Mm. And this is why I ended up in Azerbaijan. I went from one bad place to live with the communist that was safer for me. Mm. Wow. And she says, so, I think, go ahead, please, Jim. Well, so she essentially, the Holy Spirit from the Quran, from what was familiar to her, was introducing her to the Christ. Exactly. So now she challenges the Azeri and Jewish and German uh, elders there and says, brothers, mm. if we really want to win the Muslims in this nation because all that we've been working for 30, 50 years planting among the minority people. If we're going to reach the majority mm. people, my people, because I'm the same people group mm. that was divided by an imaginary political border. If we're going to reach my mm. people, we have to take them back and bring them how I came to faith. Mm. And you know who were the first ones who sided with her? The two Jewish elders. They said it make perfect sense to us. Where we find God's feet, footprints is where we have to work. Wow. And so God did wow. a beautiful thing there in that church. And when they understood that and started sharing in this manner, the church just took off. And then God did something amazing as well in the church. One miracle after another. They were in extreme hyperinflation where a taxi driver made more than a doctor. Mm. And, mm. and God... I went around to the members' homes, Jim, and I was amazed. And they said, see this bottle of oil? Mm. We've been pouring oil out of there for six months. See this mm. can of rice? We've been mm. pulling rice out of here for weeks. Mm. And when the unbelievers see what Christ can do, and we know how to explain Christ in a way that's meaningful, understandable, and relevant to them, we will see a movement happen. And as that was so, coming, well, go ahead, go well ahead. I just I, I, I think about you know there's biblical kind of there's kind of biblical precedent for going back to this woman that was saying we've got to teach them the way that I was taught like how God took me through the Quran to show me Jesus. Um, if you think about um, King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel two. He doesn't receive a vision of 
the sanctuary beasts of Daniel 8. He doesn't receive a vision of of the beasts of of creation of Daniel 7. These were images and thoughts and ideas that would have been familiar to a Hebraic mind like Daniel, which he received those kind of uh, pictures in his vision to per- portray historic epics through prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar receives the vision of an idol, which would have been what was familiar to him. It would have been what was pal- palpable to him that he could wrap his mind around. And so this idea that God would meet people where they're at to bring them into a greater revelation of what he's seeking to do in their experience he meets this woman through the Quran to bring her to Jesus. And I'm guessing eventually she got to the Bible. She did. She was a devout student of the Bible. Hmm. And as I have met other Muslims, what they say is God meets us here. The Quran is up here. The Bible's way back here. We even believe it's been corrupted by our traditions, though the Quran never Hmm. says it. And what Hmm. happens little by little, they take place. Christ puts to us the Bible. And the mm. Quran fades in the back, but when we do mission, we have to reach people from where they are at. Start where they're at. Start where, Start they're, where at. they're at. Seek first to be understood, or seek first to understand, then to be understood is the way that one of our Mormon brothers said at one time. Yes. Which I think is a is a biblical principle. If you go to James one nineteen, be slow to speak, slow to anger quick to listen. And and I've come to the conviction that we can't tell people what they need to hear and until they tell us what we need to hear. We have to hear their story, hear their context, hear their experience in order to be able to know what to share to reach them. And in this case, it was this woman who was saying, here's how I was reached. And if we will reach in this way that is is familiar and and palpable like uh, palatable uh to this people we can we can begin to make inroads that is very correct jim you put your finger on it that is correct that's what i have found in the journey god's led us on is learning mm. and that really takes me to to the next step because I was working for Adra there, and I just kept getting this really strong calling. I needed to quit what I was doing and work full-time for reaching Muslims. And one day my boss Mm. came down, and we were actually very close friends. And so Sabbath Mm. Sabbath afternoon, we're sitting in my home. We've had lunch, and he looks at me and says, Marty, forget I'm your boss. We're just two good friends like we are. Now I'm asking you as a friend, not like your boss, if you had your dream dream job, what would it be? I said, you're asking me as a friend or as the boss? Are you truly just asking as a friend? He says, just as a friend. And I says, well, I'll tell you what my dream is. You know, I heard that the church has this office that works with Muslim people with special evangelism, and it would be my biggest, biggest dream. I don't even know much about it, but for months I've been feeling that God is calling me, and I would love to go work for that office. He looks Marty. He says, Mm. if I thought I could get the job you're wanting and go do that, I'd give you my job, and I would go do that. 
And mm. he, true to his word, he he is today the head of. We both had a passion for mission, and he is the head of the of the mission department at Andrews. That's how true he was to mm. his word. We were both in administrative posts, and we both had a big passion for mission. And mm. uh, I, he says, but you know, now jokes aside, the person who's the director for that office. I don't know him very well, but we used to live close in Loma Linda, and he walked by my, he used to walk his dog in front of my house, and I know where his mm. house is. And that was the day before emails were just coming in. He says, why don't you write him an email? Mm -hmm. I'll take, write him a mail, and I will take you the letter to his house. I happen to have in about three weeks a business trip. And I will be in Loma Linda and I will go by his home because it's a GC office, but it operates out of Loma Linda. I says, man, what a small world. How is it that you even know the director? Because mm. I don't know him well, but I, uh, <laughs> I'm close enough that I, I've greeted him enough. I'll go to his house and take the letter to you for you. Mm. So mm. I wrote uh, a letter. He took it with him. And he went to the man's house, knocked on his door and said, I'm bringing this for you. He wrote back a letter and told me that he would be in about three months in Turkey. So to hmm. make a long story short, he was doing training. I went from the country I was. I went to his training seminar. And as he spoke, my heart was beating. Everything that he shared made perfect hmm. sense because uh, he had been part of, you might almost say, a covert operation of the Adventist Church mm. that were experimenting. The church has been involved and in, uh, had been involved with very mm -hmm. cutting-edge mission. They had been involved mm. with with ministry among Muslims, ministry among Jews, ministry among Hindus, ministry among remote, isolated tribes, where in many of these places it was very dangerous for the church to operate. And mm, he was mm. operating basically underground house churches in these countries, in mm. the Muslim world. And mm. so mm. as he shared these stories, it, they fitted in perfectly what I had already been learning. And as he shared how the church had been involved since, the, or since 1990 in these underground house churches among Muslims, it mm. just, wow, I couldn't believe it. So... I said, how can I join and work with you? And he says, well, I really don't have a salary. I have a <laughs> very small stipend. That stipend won't even buy your food in Southern California where our office is. And I mm. said, it doesn't matter. Will you hire us? Mm. Pay us the small stipend you have. I worked for years for ADRA. I was getting paid on U.S. government salary. And, and mm -hmm. I have savings I can live for several years. And he mm. says, deal. Mm. So to make the long wow. story short, when we when we arrived a few months later, because I had commitments not just to ADRA, and ADRA had binding commitments with the U.S. government that I had to fulfill because mm -hmm. they, like, check everything when you have these contracts and they're tied mm -hmm. to people's things and things. Sure. So I had to fulfill my, my commitment and my contract. And uh, so then we went there, and within a week of us arriving, he was diagnosed with uh, cancer, like serious. He had a oh, cancer wow. the size of almost a volleyball. Wow. And uh, all of a sudden, I found myself and my wife 
him guiding us, but operating this international office. And what we learned there was life transforming of how Hmm. God had been preparing the Adventist church for decades to reach out to the unreached and Hmm. uh, first opening up uh, over many, many uh, decades work among Muslims and Muslim work was starting to take off. And we became very involved Hmm. with that. And we've just seen since then, and about 12 years ago, there, you know, in the after 9 11 and all this upheaval, mm-hmm. there was a lot of, and as the ministries went from being a small experiment to being mm-hmm. something that was growing, a lot of threats happened mm-hmm. to the Adventist mm-hmm. Church. If you don't get out of these type of ministries, we will bomb the certain mm. administrative building. Due to that mm. and other issues, maybe not a full understanding and us also not knowing how to fully explain our work, uh, it was decided that we severed ties. But in the process, the church basically handed us most of the underground house churches we worked with. Mm. And wow. so Perfect. we now oversee those that house church movement and in the last 10 12 years it has grown in a very very massive way from a few hundred house churches to tens of thousands so as we as we wrap this up because we could probably do (laughs) three or four of these episodes but (laughs) there's a piece uh that when we were talking about what we might process tonight I think there's a commonality between the experience of the Muslim community and your family history um, in the sense of a texture of kind of generational um, transference or generational um, continuity. Um, Tell us about the generational continuity that was entrusted to you and then maybe tell us about the intersect between how that might prepare to be able to understand and intersect with the Muslim world. Thank you so much, uh, Jim, for asking that. And, and maybe I'll just share it in a different context. I, I had asked, I was living in Loma Linda and I'll put it in context so you can understand. I was living in Loma Linda, Hmm. and I met quite a few missionaries, both Adventist and from other evangelical backgrounds who had been missionaries in the Middle East and the Muslim world, and they had very, very small results after working a lifetime, even using all these contextual Hmm. methods. And I went Hmm. to the hills behind Loma Linda to pray, Lord, give me, show me how to reach people, because I was... Humbly, I say I was quite successful in the work I did pray, prior with Adra. I don't mm-hmm. want to go give a mm-hmm. lifetime for five people. Though you've mm-hmm. called for five people, I don't want to waste my time. And so mm-hmm. I heard after praying for many days, in the middle of the night, maybe about three in the morning again, praying in the hills behind Loma Linda, I hear a small, still small voice, find those that I've already been working with those people who Mm. love their Mm. land and people, 
those people that I've been working mm. in their families for generations that I've been preparing them. And uh, later I learned the term for these people are people of peace. And usually people of peace are generational for many generations. So in mm. the twists and turns in a story for another day, I was asking mm -hmm. a person by the name of Abdullah, tell me about your family. And then his brother, Muhammad, mm. and he says, well, it starts generations ago. 400 years ago, my family arrived to this nation. They came on the, they came due to a dream. God told mm. my great, great, great grandfather over 400 years ago to get up from the land of his ancestors and go to the land that I will show you. And they arrived, mm. I've been sounds, to the little village. Well, go ahead. It just sounds like Abraham. It is. It's an Abrahamic call. And he gets up and he leaves his place. I've been to the little village. There was no water. Hmm. There was time of drought. There was, a, there was a well. There was barely enough water for the villagers. And he says, if you share with me your water, there will be water for all of us. Hmm. Hmm. And indeed, eventually the villagers give him water and the well goes from being about 30 meters deep to three meters deep in the process of hmm. the miracle. And as they told me their family history, I sat with, the, with Abdullah's uncle, and he says, Abdullah is the son of, is the son of Yusuf. Yusuf is the son of Fadella. Fadella is the son of Muhammad. Muhammad's the son of Mahmoud. Mahmoud's the son of Mahmoud. Mahmoud's the son of Muhammad, and back and back. And he went to the fourth century. Hmm. And he mm. knew every generation. He knew this family story of each one. They shared it with me, and I realized these are the families I'm looking for. What did this family do? Mm. They ruled the area about the size of Texas and New Mexico combined until the British came and meddled with the system. Mm. And they provided over a large area of the Middle East the judges, and those judges were known to give justice in their rulings and not to be bought and sold. And as you asked of my own family, it made perfect sense to me because I sat at the feet, foot of my great aunt and of my great grandmother. And my mm. great grandmother sat with me, Marty, you're the son of this, you're the son of this, and knew various generations back to my 10th great grandfathers. Mm. And when I was 12 years old, my great aunt called me to her little sewing room and said, Marty, I have something special mm. to tell you. It's nothing for you to boast with your friends but at the right times you will share. She says, mm. we're direct descendants of the Mayflower, of the descendants of people who came on the Mayflower. Your great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, mm. Elizabeth Tilly, before she died, she called her children and her children's children and their children mm. to come to her bedside and made them swear that they would never forget why their fa our family and why the other pilgrim families came to America. She says the mm. history books have taken it out of the history mm. books, but our family knows why we came. Mm. Because, uh, yes, we came to look to keep our children speaking English. We were Anglo-Saxons, mm. came to continue the English language. We came to have... Uh, freedom of religion, but we had a much, much bigger dream. Hmm. We believe that we were coming to be the, the 
physical and spiritual foundations of a future nation that their mm. goal would be to take the gospel to the utter ends of the earth. Mm. Mm. And that every generation of Americans were called by a holy covenant taken by our ancestors and by the pilgrim forefathers who arrived that their real reason, because they knew they would lose probably up to half of their members and mm. coming to America because they already knew what had happened in Jamestown, but they were willing to take that sacrifice. It was seven years. It'd be like going to Mars today. It would cost seven years income of a medium income earner to pay the voyage to America. And they came mm. because they had a dream that one day all the earth would be lightened with the glory of God and the sovereignty of God would be complete and the emperorship of Christ would be, the kingdom of Christ would be in every corner of the earth and they would plant a mission movement. Mm. So when I'm 12 years old, my mm. great aunt shared with me the story. She took my hand, told me about how it had been passed from generation to generation, how as a child she had been shown the ancient Bible of my great-great-grandmother and then she prayed over me and said that as mm. the sons and daughters of the pilgrim ancestors, we had a very, very sacred calling. Mm. She is Baptist mm. prayed over me. She says, you're a son of a minister, you're sons of missionaries, and you must carry on that, mm. and you must pass that. And it's not just for you, because over 35 million Americans, between 30 and 35 million Americans are descendants of the people who took that covenant. Mm. So as I went around the world looking for people mm. of peace, I found just like Abdullah and his brother Muhammad, that mm. they, God had a movement about 400 years ago, and he moved families from one country to another, from one continent to another for missional mm. purposes. Mm. And my understanding is in your journeys and ministry that, and I don't know if, it was what, what was the man's name again? M M How did you say Abdullah? It? Abdullah. I don't know if it was his family, but that you've encountered families going generations back, where in the Muslim community they were honoring Shabbat. It's true. It's true, and that's another sacred. My family's been keeping Sabbath since 1678 in America. Mm. And I have found that the the big, big ministry leaders God has led me to, God mm. has been preparing for about 10 generations, their family. Mm. And many of them, both with the people I told you, they had been keeping the Sabbath since about the fourth century. Mm. That's where their history went back to. So they their family had been keeping Sabbath much longer than my family. So my family just like through it since 1678 have kept Sabbath. Their family hmm. from the fourth century had been keeping Sabbath as Muslims. You, the person is, is God-fearers. They had Jewish missionaries come to them, but they weren't Jewish converts. They were God-fearers. And hmm. then they became Muslims and kept Sabbath. Wow. And I have so found you have to... Sabbath spread across the Muslim world. It's in every mm. corner of earth. God has kept a remnant who has kept Sabbath. So you have this texture, and I think it's interesting to think about this idea of generations of peaceful people 
that are remembered by God and remember God's call to rest. And, and when you think about what Shabbat is, this invitation to lay aside our labors, to remember and rejoice in his finished work, that the power of from Sabbath to Sabbath through generation to generation, a restful, peaceful people, of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And it's almost like God is seeking to say, Marty Phillips, let me introduce you to your brother, Abdul, and to your sister, who was there in that, that church that discovered Jesus in the Quran. Let me introduce you to your peaceful family members, that through their generations I have been drawing them to myself. And in the generations to come, I want to use their children to draw others to myself. And I think of these examples, like when he gave the promise originally to our father Abraham, he said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I'm the God of generation to generation and of the Philippian jailer, and his whole household was converted, and of Cornelius the centurion, and his whole household was converted. And in and, and the West, we think individualistically, but that was not the case for our forefathers that came to this country. They See, thought the greatest, as a community. You're right. They thought, I'll tell you the greatest sadness. When I was seven in 1976, 1976, 77, when I was six, seven years old, I was born in 70, and my grandmother was 93 when I was in 1976, so I guess I was six years old, and she started to share with me clear back to old colonial times, and she knew all these stories, and shows she told me her greatest sadness and her greatest fear was that with the generation of their child, her children across America, they cared no longer about the stories of the ancestors. Mm. And so mm. she says, my son doesn't even know why I named him David. Hmm. And he doesn't hardly even care. And my grandchildren. Hmm. So she spent months telling me the stories. And she says, this is not just my story. This is the story of my generation. Our generation knew up to eight to ten generations of our family trees. We all mm. knew from our first ancestors, the old colonial families all knew back to the first ancestor plus beyond. So, for example, my great-grandmother, she knew her husband's side to about my tenth great-grandfather. Mm. She knew her side to about her to my tenth great-grandfather. She knew who my fourteenth great-grandfather was, and she knew who my about my twentieth great-grandfather was from her side. Mm -hmm. And that's totally mm -hmm. lost today. But in the Muslim world, they keep that. But until about the late 1800s, families still all knew you would go to a new town and you would start talking, oh, I'm, we're third cousins, and figure it out mm -hmm. very quickly. And they could go back many generations and count. And see, my great-grandmother told me, we keep this so we know the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
And when a na- hmm. collectively the families of the nation forget who they are, the nation forgets who they are. Hmm. Maybe that's a good place to wrap it. I think of the words of an Adventist pioneer who had said, we have nothing to fear for the future, but that we forget the way God has led and is teaching in our past history. May you take a moment to look back on your family history, to dig in and say, what are the stories? What is the heritage of the way God has led in the past of my family? May you go in his grace and intersect for his kingdom with your family heritage and the nations. God bless. God bless.